Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 63 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I got to speak with Dr. Barry Strauss, a professor of classics and a military and naval historian at Cornell University. As the series editor of Princeton's Turning Points in Ancient History and author of nine books on ancient history, Professor Strauss is a recognized authority on the subject of leadership and the lessons that can be learned from the experiences of the greatest political and military leaders of the ancient world, like Caesar, Hannibal, Alexander, and others. He is a former director of Cornell's Judith Repi Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies, where he studied modern engagements from Bosnia to Iraq and from Afghanistan to Europe. He has also made numerous television appearances on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, CNN, PBS, and Netflix, and also hosts the popular podcast Antiquitas, Leaders and Legends of the Ancient World. In this episode, I was excited to discuss why Julius Caesar is his favorite ancient military leader, what it means to be a global citizen by comparing differences between EU-US systems, and look at accuracy or inaccuracy of adaptations of ancient battles in film and TV. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. I was really excited for this conversation. So I want to start us off with what I hope will be just a very easy question for you, which is, how did you get into classics and ancient history? Where did this love come from? Thanks, Lexi. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. When people ask me that, I always say I was misinformed. I thought I was dropping out. I thought I was doing a latter-day hippie thing. It was 1970, and I was a college freshman. And I thought that by studying ancient Greek, I would get away from it all. But instead, I discovered that it was actually another way of coming back and understanding my own society and uh, my own my own times. Uh, I always loved languages, and 
I guess the first book that really got me interested in the classics was reading Thucydides, which was, as we used to say, it blew my mind. I was amazed at how the depth of the insight and how much he spoke to the current day, which at the time in 1970 was the war in Vietnam. And from there, um, I went to Homer and then I was really a goner, reading Homer, reading ancient Greek. I had some wonderful teachers. They certainly uh, made an enormous difference as well. I think we all owe some much to our teachers. And then I had the chance to go to Greece and, and to study there and in Italy as well. And what can I say? There I was. Hey, that's pretty awesome. And did you have access to like uh, ancient history classes, um, like like a general ancient history class or more select ones when you were in like high school? No, not nothing when I was in high school. European history, which I love, I think started with the Middle Ages and uh, pretty quickly went to the Renaissance, and Latin wasn't offered in my high school, except French and German. Okay. And so when you discovered that this was like a possibility to just study at the collegiate level, was there any hesitation to go into ancient history? As an undergraduate major? Not really. I mean, I majored in history with a specialty in ancient history, and I, I took almost enough cl classes to do a classics major as well, like me because I was stubborn and I wanted to graduate early. I didn't complete the classics major. Becoming a professional ancient historian, now that was much more of a, a decision. I originally wanted to be a journalist. That was my original plan. I was in, uh, on the student newspaper, an active reporter and editor, and I had an internship at a suburban daily. Uh, and I liked it, but I realized that I didn't love it enough to make a profession of it. So I decided to apply to graduate school. I was lucky enough to get in um, and, and to be able to study at the graduate level. Wow. I mean, hey, that's awesome. I'm glad that you figured it out before you went through all the training uh, just to then turn around and, and switch professions. But I'm, I'm curious, how did you make the choice? How did you end up like choosing your graduate specialty? Because I know there's so many different like directions you could possibly go well i had no doubt that i wanted to be a historian that was pretty easy i actually wondered for a time whether i was going to do ancient history or modern european history when i got to graduate school they were just i'd always been interested in modern europe as well i spent some a, a summer studying in germany studying german thought a bit about becoming a modern european historian but Really, the reasons I didn't was, first of all, the pull of the Mediterranean was pretty strong. Northern Europe's a great place, but the Mediterranean has a special appeal. And secondly, I, I love the teachers. I love my classes. I love learning Greek and Latin. I was fortunate to work with a number of really great historians and classicists uh, in graduate school. None was more influential uh, than working with Donald Kagan. He's just a remarkable individual, perhaps the best teacher I've ever known. The chance of working with him, studying Greek history with him, well, it, it spoke for itself. So cool. And I mean, I, I know that you're an expert, really, in uh, military strategy and, and leadership and naval history. I know a couple of people when I came up through university who also had an interest in like specifically they said ancient Greek warfare what was it about like naval history that really attracted you and I asked this in part because when I was an undergrad I was very taken with the Battle of Salamis in particular but I made no attempt to do more than just take a class on that I like water I'm not good at hand-eye coordination sports so by process of eliminations, uh, repetitive motion sports like running and swimming and rowing 
always really appealed to me. And like I said, I like water. So I got really interested in naval history. It involves technology, but not daunting technology, technology that uh, even a non-technical person like me could understand or get some understanding of. So it appealed to me in, in various ways. It, of course, it has its own kind of romance, its own kind of magic, and that was exciting as well. And I mean, I suppose the other half is studying like ancient military leaders and such. So I'm kind of curious, uh, do, you, do you have a favorite ancient military leader and, and why so? I think Caesar is my favorite. It's not because I want to emulate Caesar. And I don't think leaders today should emulate Caesar. But gosh, he was fascinating. I mean, first of all, he was brilliant. Secondly, he, he really was uh, an all-around athlete, as it goes. I mean, he was a, a great commander, and he was a great politician, and he was also a great writer. It's a combination that we don't often find in history. Caesar had, had it all. Well, he was also self-interested and egotistical and vain and deluded in the end about uh, what he couldn't and couldn't do. And he thought nothing of uh, subjecting his society to a civil war and to advance his own agenda. Maybe all the fault doesn't lie on his shoulders. His opponents certainly deserve some of the fault as well. But he's just a fascinating figure. Yeah, I admit I haven't really studied him as much as I probably could have, but it, there's a lot of history to go through. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a bit impossible unless you specialize in someone. So um, I definitely know I have a lot more to learn from him. But I approach a lot of ancient leaders, I guess, through the more modern context myself, since after I picked up my bachelor's in classics, I went into sort of modern politics, which is not too far of a jump. But it's really interesting because I guess coming in from that more modern lens, I've been able to look at what modern leaders do. And I mean, we've got, you know, modern leaders like Boris Johnson out here quoting ancient people. So, you know, how has the experience been to have this great background and then look for at basically everything that's happening right now in our in our current climate. No, well, I think it's tremendously helpful. I teach ancient Greek history, among other things, and I love teaching about Athens and Sparta and the growth of democracy, ancient democracy, and its uh, its pluses and minuses. I think it really helps provide a background for current conversations about democracy and what democracy might mean, what it doesn't mean, what it doesn't mean. It's also good to know, I think Americans have a tendency to look down on history and not pay attention to history. We don't pay attention even that much to our own history or to think that the world began with us. Uh, I think it's tremendously useful to look at an ancient society and an ancient democracy thousands of years ago to compare their experience to our experience. Likewise, when you talk about the rise and fall of civilizations, the Romans are a very good benchmark. They're not the only benchmark, but they are an awfully useful one. As you know, so many people ask about the United States. Are we Rome? Are we going to decline like Rome? Or are we the declining republic? Are we the declining empire? I think it's really useful to get have a sense of, well, what were they really like? What were they all about? It helps us to understand where we are today. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I've noticed kind of a trend of a lot of people, they think about what obviously is is closest or most impacts them in terms of conflicts and i think we do have this tendency to look at 
the ancient world and separate them from us and say, okay, I'm going to look down and, and see what they did. But in your expertise as someone who studied both ancient and who's looked at modern conflicts, um, you know, for the for the casual observer who just says, well, there's no no parallel between the, I don't know, Peloponnesian War and Armenian Genocide or conflicts in, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan. How do we do a better job of like finding the parallels, even if it's not immediately apparent? Well, I always tell my students that it's always good to start with the fundamentals. And so when you're studying war, you want to be you want to start with the fundamental theorists to understand what it is. And by the way, I don't restrict them to the classical world. If we want to understand the fundamental theory of war, the two most important texts are Sun Tzu from ancient China and Clausewitz from 19th century Germany. But it's also important to bring into the conversation Thucydides and uh, Machiavelli, Jomini, uh, and 19th century Swiss writer, and some more recent theorists, uh, Soviet theorists, as a matter of fact, uh, American theorists, uh, they're very much part of the conversation as well. So um, I think studying, you always want to ground what you're doing in the classics, whatever the classics uh, in the field happen to be. So I, I, I think that's what I would say. Uh, I believe it's Clausewitz who says that the character of war changes, but the nature of war does not. And I think that's true. The nature of war doesn't change. Uh, but the fundamentals remain the fundamentals. Um, and we can apply them to the study of any conflict. In fact, I think we're much better off understanding what's going on uh, by applying the fundamentals and saying, how does this particular conflict fit into those fundamental categories? Yeah. Oh, that's, I mean, that's, that's some really good insight there because I think that we all too often definitely have a tendency not to look at conflict that way. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because we like have a tendency to just look quite inward and like at, what is it, the human tendency to only look at what affects you directly or something like that? Uh, I know there's I know there's like a famous quote about that somewhere, but I can't remember it. Yes, it is uh, a part of our nature, for better or worse, that we tend to focus on ourselves and go look inward out. But in terms of looking, kind of referring back to the classics in the ancient world, I've kind of noticed there's like a small pattern of there are still a lot of ancient conflicts that we don't, that like scholarship and people just don't really focus on as much as others. So obviously we have a ton of literature and things on the ancient Mediterranean and a lot on like ancient Egypt, but like I'm sure there's a lot of really other interesting ancient civilizations and conflicts and leaders and all these things in other civilizations that just aren't as popular. Um you know, as I think you have the benefit as more of a well-rounded ancient historian than someone who focused just on one to say, no, this is like, no, th th like they all have something really valuable to contribute. What, in your opinion, like, why do you think it's not as popular to study some of these other places? Is it just because lack of evidence or is it like, so, like what, just lack of interest? I mean, you're asking a good question. I think the answer is complex. Greece and Rome have their prestige because of their classic texts and because the influence of those texts um, in the West, in the Middle Ages, in the Renaissance, and since then. But of course, there are other societies that also have classic texts that haven't been studied so much in the West. And they've been studied less because they're less influential, but also because of cultural bias, because of Eurocentric bias without question. So, for instance, um, I, I'd say... Uh, 
uh, I'm Jewish and in my own culture, there's the Talmud, there's the Mishnah, there's uh, the, the Hebrew Bible and all that. They've been studied to a degree, but not that much. Uh, and there's really a lot there that could be more central to what we study. Uh, moving a little further to the East, we haven't studied so much the text of the Hittite civilization. Uh, there's an enormous amount of evidence from Hittite civilization. In terms of Egypt, well, yes, we've paid a certain amount of attention to Philonic Egypt, but we haven't paid that much attention to uh, Greco-Roman Egypt and to the enormous amount of text written in Demotic Egyptian. It's a language that very few of us are prepared to study, uh, but it's there. Classicists could be looking at these civilizations more. Uh, of course, they're obviously in other parts of the world, uh, in South Asia and East Asia, for example, there are other civilizations uh, that we could be studying more. And I think that we should, likewise, in the New World, uh, in the Americas, uh, there are pre-modern civilizations, pre-Columbian civilizations. And in Africa, there are pre-modern civilizations that have also been studied. Ethiopia, for example, or um, uh, the civilization of what became Sudan uh, could also be studied. In terms of looking at ancient society in the pre-modern world, I think that all of these need to be brought into the conversation. And we want to have experts working on all of these things. And the question of what we study and what we don't study has something to do with politics of any society and what groups have class and what they want to study. At the end of the day, though, when we decide what, uh, what we want to teach the young, what we want to teach in college, what we want to teach in high school, we have to pick and choose. So um, one thing that we want to do is we want to have a sense of Western civilization, what it is, what its roots are, and we all want to focus on teaching. But we now live in a global society, and I think it would be a mistake not also to teach young people some sense of what global society is and what classics of other civilizations are. However, I think it is a mistake to say it's all a matter of global citizenship. Global citizenship sounds nice, but there's no such thing as global citizenship. None of us is a citizen of the world. We're all citizens of countries. And one of the challenges of the Greek polis that I think for us today is is it possible to be a citizen of a large institution or of a large uh, organization? I mean, one of the ideas behind the United States is that the answer is yes, to a degree, you can be a citizen of a large organization, but you also need to belong to something more local uh, and smaller because it'll just get swallowed up in a large organization. That's why we have a federal system. That's why we have and why we have states and one in 50 states. And of course, we have municipalities and local governments as well. So I think there's a real challenge uh, ahead as to how you can have that, that local level and that sense of belonging to a community while also being part of a global, um, global community in the world. Um, it's not a simple thing. And I think classics has something to contribute to that conversation. But we're not the be-all and end-all of the conversation. We're only a part of the conversation. We should have a seat at the table, but we're not the whole thing. That's so fascinating because I know, at least I suppose since I probably went off to college, I feel like I've heard a lot of people sort of using the words global citizen or world citizen um, as kind of like buzzwords, keywords to imply that like 
oh yes I'm part of something bigger and it's not just me but it's it's quite fascinating to hear your take on it because funnily enough that's something that I started saying in the last like honestly five years which is oh yes I, I'm I feel so globalized so I feel like I'm a global citizen I don't just want to identify with my my one city or place yeah i i mean i think it's a good thing to do and i feel part of the world community as well but we don't have citizenship in the world and we don't have any rights um to determine what goes on in 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 the rest of the world and i think we have to also insist we should have some say in what goes on in our local communities i mean right now we are swept we're in danger of being swept away by forces over which we have no control. And as part of today's world, there are going to be these forces over which we have no control. And we have to understand, we have to accept that. But I think we also have the right to say, but I do want to carve out a space where I'm citizen, we're citizens with our fellow citizens and we get to decide something on the local level. I think I hear about global citizenship, I worry because the only large scale institutions that we've had before are empires and the individual doesn't have a whole lot of say in an empire. Um, we do have very large democracies like the United States, uh, Brazil, and India. They're very challenging, and it's very challenging as an individual to feel that you have any say in a country like the United States, much less India. Um, how could you have challenge on on? How could you have a say on the global level with eight billion humans on Earth? As we're getting close. To. I mean, I'm fascinated. So, and and this kind of goes into the more contemporary stuff that I've been studying for the past year. So I'm getting really excited now. But I, my master's program that I just finished, it was on, it was an emphasis on Southeast European issues, like Balkan studies, basically. But a lot of it had to do with looking at the relationship of the Balkan states with the EU. And so I had to do a lot of basically work this year on EU institutions. And so I'm curious to think, you know, I know there's a lot of confusion by normal people on what exactly the EU is. They're like, is it a confederation of states? Is it does it operate like a big federation? So as someone who's looking at you know, how do you have a say? And I know a lot of people in Europe complain because they're like, I don't know what these EU institutions are doing. Is the EU currently the closest thing we have to a, a more global citizenship? Just because at least if you're in the EU, you can go to all the EU countries and you sort of have similar rights. Yeah. I mean, the EU is a wonderful thing in some ways, but in other ways it's problematic. As you know, it's got the infamous democracy deficit. I don't think anyone would say the EU is a democracy. Uh, it's it's a collection of democracies, but as uh, as an entity, as a global entity, it doesn't work as a, it doesn't work as a democracy, um, and it would be difficult to make it work as a democracy. In some ways, it's a model of something good, um, but in other ways, uh, the EU has a way of interfering with local ways of doing things. Sometimes we might say it, its interventions are for the good, and in other ways, they're not so much for the good. And I don't think the EU has worked out the balance between local government and central uh, and central direction. So I think that's that's a challenge for the EU. And if the EU is our example of global government, I would say we got we, it's a good start, but we have a ways to go. Yeah, it's just interesting to think about because someone made the parallel this year that while it's not completely similar, you know, 
the U.S. is a whole continent full of individual mini states. And so someone sort of made the example in a class of mine and just said, well, the EU is kind of like the U.S., but definitely different because instead of all of the countries of Europe being one country called Europe, um, they do have their individual like federal governments. And then they still do have those lower rungs of like municipal, more localized centers of power. But the parallels are really interesting to see. Yes. Well, I think there's a massive difference between the EU and the U.S. And that is in the United States, we have transfer payments. Um, and there's no idea in the United States, we don't have the idea that one state is going to have to pay back to the federal government uh, what it's borrowed. I mean, we're all in it together. Whereas in the EU, you know, poor little Greece had to pay back what it had borrowed from the EU. And you know, the, the most powerful economies uh, like Germany and France and the Netherlands and Austria make it clear that they're not going to subsidize the, the poor economy. So that's that's a really big difference, I would say, between the EU and the U.S. And, and an index of how far the EU has to go. Yeah, no, it's just it really is fascinating to look at because both systems obviously have their pros and both have their major cons. Um, and so we can't really say one's better than the other. But I just I do find it interesting. I was talking with a friend the other day who I think um, I, I sort of um, she was talking about a, a trip to some other country somewhere in Europe and how, you know, she didn't have to do anything other than she could just move there for an internship or a job if she wanted. And I think I just um, playfully made the comment, oh, you guys, you Europeans have it so easy. You could just move to like Slovakia and get a job and resettle in a day. How easy is that? And I think she said something like, yeah, but you Americans are so lucky. You could move all the way across your country and then there's no language barrier, no cultural difference. You can just up and move the same as I can to a completely new place, a new environment. But she's, she was like, it's easier for you. I think it is much easier in the United States. It really is. You know, of course, it's wonderful in that in Europe, people can move from one country to another. But the the local differences and the differences in language and culture are still immense. And there are they're practical barriers for a lot of people. I mean, I think in both countries, it's understandable that there'd be people in the local level who don't feel as if they have as much power as they'd like as to what goes on in the system overall. But um, I think that in the U.S. we do have more power over the system as a whole than people do in the EU. It's so interesting. People, I guess, the, then the lesson there is we should probably give it give the U.S. more credit than we do because I know sometimes we don't and we just kind of like to complain. But um, there are some nice things. There are actually some nice things that we don't consider. So I want to go back a little bit. The line of questioning I had asking about leaders and and other stuff like that and it just occurred to me maybe the reason we don't study some other not as popular ancient civilizations or leaders are because one the victors obviously get to write the story the narrative and so the the losers don't really get a say in that because they're just kind of either erased or they're yeah but as someone who studies both the victors and those who are not. What is it about this fascination that I've noticed that humans have with like the epic tragic hero, the one who definitely absolutely loses, but we still love them like a, like a Hannibal type. 
um, because that's like a really popular thing where we're like, oh yeah, but they're a lovable loser. Um, we still, you know, look to them, try to find lessons in, in their losses, I suppose. So, um, is that like a really human thing or, or is there, is there like more to actually be gained from looking at those who aren't necessarily the, uh, the victors in the ancient world? Well, it is a human thing. You're very wise. I think that we all know that failure is a part of life. None of us can be a winner all the time. And I think it's Americans are very nervous about not winning. You know, not every culture has the concept of a loser. Uh, it's a very American thing to talk about losers. But I think we sympathize with the people who fail. They're less threatening to us in a way. Um, and uh, but we, we were, we're aware of the fact that we fail sometimes. We've all failed sometimes in life. And so we want to understand, well, what do we make of failure? And how can we accept failure? How can we move on from it? How can we make sense of it? I think that's one of the appeals of, of, of you know, ancient epic and, and tragedy. Um, you know, in the story of Achilles or in the story of Oedipus or the story of Antigone. Um, these are people who, who fail big. <laughs> and yet... Uh, and yet they're heroes on a certain level and when we learn from them when we admire from them um, and it's the wisdom that they gain the courage that they show in the face of suffering uh, they're tremendously appealing interesting you know i never thought about the concept of winning and losing as a super american thing until just now it's a very american thing i mean i and i'm an italian friend of mine who spends a lot of time in the u.s had to explain to people in Italy what the concept of a perdente is, because it's not something that they really talk about. Wow. So, I mean, for some of these other, I mean, in the ancient world, I mean, there were clear winners and losers, as we know, but also, like, I guess it's it's still, even back then, wasn't quite as black and white as it, it is today. No, I mean, no. No, I don't think it was. I don't think it was. I don't think they think of someone who's a loser i don't know how you'd say that in, in ancient greek or latin maybe you can i don't know but um yeah well doesn't it show up in like ancient sport where you don't get like um you know ancient olympics or something where you get first place and then you don't not not is isn't it like not everyone was like a loser per se but it was just the winner and then you have like the second winner or the no they didn't they only had first prizes there were no second and third prizes but in the ancient Olympics, you know, you win or that's it. But come to think of it, there is some thought about losers in ancient culture. Ajax is a tragedy about somebody who can't accept his defeat and who destroys himself uh, because of the burden of defeat. But I think that's a little different from our concept of someone being a loser. <laughs> That's true. I mean, but I feel like some some things have carried over. Okay, so sticking with the theme of like the ancient Olympics, okay, even if you don't if you only have the winner and that's it. Um I think even even today in like the modern Olympics, like we still respect and on I don't know, on some level revere athletes who may not win the gold, but we still see them as like, oh, well, you're still um you're still someone worthy of being looked up to. Like the reputation of being an Olympian is enough to inspire like awe, right? And I would say 
I mean, I only took one class in like the ancient Olympics and that was like freshman year. So it was a long time ago, but I feel like there was something about, yeah, like if you were an ancient Olympian in that time, even if you didn't win, like you were still highly respected because you, you made it. I don't know. I mean, I can't think offhand of any uh, ancient speech or text where somebody says, well, I competed in the Olympics. I didn't win, but I competed. Um, the thing that comes to mind is a speech of Alcibiades and Thucydides, where he brags about his Olympic victory, and then he brags about the time he he forced all of Greece to fight in a coalition and against Athens and its enemies, and and they lost. But it still is a great thing. Um, that's uh, I think that's meant to be a kind of sophistic scam and to show what fast talkers can do. I think that maybe ancient society is is more harsh. Um, uh, in the dichotomy between winning and losing, it, it wanted to glorify the winners. I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but <laughs> you know, I don't either because it's been so long since I've taken this class that I'm I'm honestly sitting here trying to rack my brain for anything that will sort of um, you know clank around in there. There's probably some text where somebody talks, you know, prides himself because it's only males. I'm afraid prides himself on competing in the Olympics and not winning, but I can't think of any offhand. It's okay. I can't either. <laughs> well, uh, if we think of something, we can do a follow-up and say, hey, we remembered. By the way, there is one example, a famous example of a woman who wins in the Olympics, and that is Kiniska of Sparta. She is uh, the uh, a member of the royal family, and she sponsors chariot races that win and puts up uh, a monument. Uh, commemorating this she's not a competitor but the, 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 the person who wins the chariot race is basically the sponsor uh the owner of the chariot that's the person who gets the prize not the charioteer and in this case kiniska um the spartan woman had um uh, she was the owner she's the one who paid for and sponsored this so she, she wins the olympic prize wow okay that's very different from nowadays but that's really i mean hey at least we can say a, a woman sort of won something <laughs> yeah but of course at the in the super bowl it's the it's the owner of the team who gets the prize you think about it you know the, the team owner gets to you know hold up the cup at, the, at you know at the ceremony at the end of the super bowl true Although, but isn't it still passed around? And sure. Yes. 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 More, it's more democratic than in the Olympics. Okay. But I was like, well, I guess you're right, though. Like the owner would keep the trophy. He would keep it long run, and you could put it in your building or something. But I suppose you're right. The the players don't get to keep it. No, for, only for the year, I think. Then it goes to the next one. I think. But I may be wrong. I may be wrong. Don't know. I don't know enough about. Um football or any of this i was like i know for for things like hockey there's one stanley cup and i know that they don't keep that and they get their rings but i think it's called the lombardi trophy and i don't know i don't know if it moves from place to place i kind of think it does but i'm not sure but as you say the stanley cup got that yeah so i was like well there's some that do some that don't because i know baseball is my favorite sport and i do know that individual teams get to keep their team trophy and they just make a new one every year that's why i'm not a, an expert in in modern sport or else i would know those answers i believe a billion years ago someone gifted me your book on the battle of salamis because i know that came out when i was either in high school or something and it was a gift now i can't ask you specific questions because it's been a very long time since i read it but for other folks who 
love that battle as much as I do. Would you tell us a little bit about it and like refresh my memory at least? So for folks who are interested in in, uh, in Salamis, you know, give us something to read. So the Battle of Salamis is the turning point in the war between the Greeks and the Persians when uh, the Persians led by their king Xerxes invaded the Greek mainland. Um, and the Greeks had been losing up until Salamis. Um, and this was a naval battle right off the coast of Athens within sight of the Acropolis. Uh, you'd have to have very good eyes to see it in the Acropolis. You can see the site in, in general uh, between the mainland and the island of Salamis. So in a space that's a couple of miles off the coast of the mainland, a mile and a half at its narrowest. And uh, the Greek fleet uh, defeated the Persian fleet. It really handed its head to the Persian fleet uh, as a result of, above all, of the leadership of Themistocles, the Athenian leader who was extremely cunning uh, and who managed to uh, double-cross both sides in order uh, to win this victory. Uh, the war continued after that, but the Persian navy and the Persian king were forced to go home, and Persia had uh, occupied central Greece with its much smaller force, a land army. It was finally defeated by Spartan-led Greek army uh, the next spring. But, but Salamis was the turning point. Um, it really saved Greece from the Persians. So I need to go back and reread the book. But if you are interested in any of the like Greco-Persian wars, this would be your book. And I know you have a new book coming out. And would you please tell us about that if we want to go read that? Sure. So um, it, it actually came out in March. It's my most recent book. It's called The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. And it's about another great uh, naval battle off the coast of Greece. Uh, this one is uh, the battle for control of the Roman Empire. Uh, uh, almost 500 years later, so Salamis is 480 BC and Actium is 31 BC. It's between, uh, on the one hand, the forces of Mark Antony and his ally and uh, mistress Cleopatra. And on the other hand, the forces of Octavian uh, with a big assist from his uh his right-hand man and great general, uh, Marcus Agrippa. Uh, and what was at stake was who would control the Roman Empire. Um, so it's a very dramatic battle and uh, very interesting because it's not just a battle, but it's also a campaign. And in some ways, um, the key events took place six months earlier in a, uh, a very uh, dramatic and daring raid on the coast of Greece that was launched by Agrippa. So uh, another exciting story and one with larger than life characters. And thanks to Shakespeare, it's got unforgettable characters above all Cleopatra, uh, one of the most um, extraordinary woman rulers in all history. So would it be fair to say it's basically just a novelization of the battle? No, no, it's a history book. Okay, it's a history, it's a history book. book. Okay. Not a novelization. Um, as a historian, uh, I pride myself on writing books that are readable and that focus on characters. Um, and and this, this is an example of this. But I did a lot of research on this book in, in, more than, in many different languages. So it is, it is firmly based in the historical reality and in the, the literary evidence, the archaeological evidence. And the recent archaeological evidence has told us a lot that we didn't know. And the numismatic evidence. Coins are a very important part of this story as well. Well, that definitely sounds like a book for me because I'm a little amateur num numismatist. I absolutely love looking at coins. 
I think we might get the coin, the coin evidence uh, for for this and for Cleopatra is quite fascinating. Oh, I can't wait to go buy this book. I need to. I need to. Re- this is going to be the next thing on my reading list. Um, so n- now that the new book is is on Actium, I mean, this is a quite famous battle, and I'm curious. There have been a couple that I know of and then probably more that I'm not aware of, but there's a couple very notable recreations of this famous battle in TV, film, media. And I was wondering if you had a favorite adaptation and whether you think any of these did it justice or whether it was completely inaccurate. Well, the short answer is no, they don't do it justice. (laughs) I mean, my favorite adaptation is Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. I mean, that's magnificent. It doesn't do justice to the historical reality, but Shakespeare did a really good job considering when he was writing. Uh, he did an extremely good job of, of being close to the history. And, and act, the battle only takes place off stage uh, in Shakespeare. Um, uh, I don't remember how they depict the battle in the the famous and infamous Hollywood movie Cleopatra uh, with uh, uh, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Uh, and I don't know what other recreations of Actium there are. I'm sure I'm forgetting about some some important ones. But no, I don't think that, that Hollywood has done justice to it yet. <laughs> I mean, it's hard, if not almost impossible. I, I feel like as someone who studied the ancient world, to see something that I'm like, yes, this so good it captures it oh okay i'm only aware of like two really high profile adaptations of it one was the uh cleopatra with elizabeth taylor which it was fine because they, i remember they they had them sailing to actium but basically it was like just this one scene of antony's ship pursuing what he thought was octavian's ship um so they basically like set the ship on fire and then and then you just see like random dudes fighting and then you see Cleopatra's barge like running away and then it cuts to a shot of Antony saying, is she leaving me? And then um, like jumps off into a little boat and, and runs away. So it was it was pretty short because um, it cuts to a lot of like the strategizing on land of people looking over the military table and going, ah, what if we do this? So um, you don't see a lot of the action, but I think the, the only other one that I'm remembering is they portrayed a tiny bit of it in the HBO Rome series. It was like one at the end of like one of the last episodes in the series in the second series. So um, I think most of it you don't see on screen. You might see a little bit, but you hear of it. I don't remember them doing a very notable job on it, so it probably wasn't even that good or extensive. And then they might have included it in like a video game or two. I'm sure the newest, well, the not new, but the, yeah, I'm pretty sure like the the Assassin's Creed set in Egypt featured that, but I don't think it was very good either. Is that just logistics wise, like filming it and either not using CGI or you have to use CGI? Uh, you have to use CGI, but also. All of us have some sense of what life is like on land, but most of us don't really know what life is like at sea. We don't really understand the winds, uh, the waves. Uh, Tide's not a big factor in the Mediterranean. It is, of course, in the ocean. Um, So it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to show. 
I mean, do we do land battles any better, though? I'm trying to think of, like, really good land battles that capture. Like, um, the 2004, I want to say, Alexander movie. I know they tried to show several of his epic campaigns, and either for Hollywood reasons, I know they cut some down or cut some back, or people didn't get a full sense of, like, his military genius because they were like oh okay just random people fighting i forget if they make what their big biggest battle is whether it's isis or galgamela but i think it did a pretty good job there were things about it that i liked and i liked the way they depicted alexander at the battle of the granicus so um it wasn't bad it really wasn't bad i mean the best thing i heard about that was that they got his hair right oh uh, they got his hair right yeah um i mean the movie as a whole has its issues, but it had some moments. You know, another thing, another film that they didn't get the battle so right, but it has some good features is The Kingdom of Heaven, which has the Battle of uh, Battle of Hatin in 1187. You know, they filmed it in Morocco, I think, so it doesn't really look like the Galilee where the battle took place. But it's got some moments. I think it's a pretty useful movie in some ways. I do remember liking that one. There was... Although the, I remember there being some controversy over like the director's cut versus the theatrical because they left the director's cut. The director's cut is much better than the theatrical version of of Kingdom of Heaven. So one of the few last things I did want to ask you about was I I've seen that you've done some consulting work for like television series. Um, for for historical things and i was just curious for young historians or classists who are interested in that sort of thing um you know what was your experience like being able to be one of the few people who got to do history and then also uh dabble a bit in, in consulting for for tv oh i think there are many of us but um i mean i was lucky i was fortunate to be to be asked and i think i learned a lot about how about communications and how you tell stories to people. Um, sometimes I was horrified at the things that had to be left out or things that had to be simplified. But by the same token, I learned that there's something to be said for not overwhelming people with facts. And I think that academics, we academics have a tendency to frankly to want to show off how much we know. And maybe we feel anxious that if we don't show off how much we know, nobody will respect us. But I think that, you know, there's a huge audience of intelligent lay people out there who don't want to be talked down to, but who don't want to have to absorb a thousand names and dates. Um, they just want the few most important ones. And I think the experience of working with these TV series shows you that. That's a good thing I think I took away from the experience. I think I don't want to dwell on the bad things, <laughs> but the good things, the good things are really good. That's really great to hear. And I mean, I know a couple people who they would love. That's like their dream job is to consult on things. But as someone who's done it, you know, do you think this is going to be a viable kind of permanent job thing in the future? Or is this like a side gig that most young people who want to, you know, be classes, be historians, they're going to have to just be like, OK, it's a, it's a side gig because I can't actually do a full time consulting thing it's a side gig that being said there are people who study history who then go work in the in the entertainment industry um and some who work in making documentaries and making 
in making series such as the ones you see on TV. Now, that's not a side gig. That can be a full-time job. But I think consulting is just a side gig. And just as someone who's dabbled and done so much, if there were any great military campaign or figure who we don't think has been covered enough, is there anything you'd like to see you know, made into a a series or something um, that would be really, really cool for, I mean, everyone, but also certainly for for historians to see brought to to life. Because, I mean, we love seeing the Actiums and Peloponnesian Wars and stuff, but we, they're, and Trojan War for sure, but it's all overdone. And we just, we have so many things and there's so many things that we haven't done. Well, of course, I think it should be my own book and should we should do Actium uh, that need that, that needs to be done. And, and as you said, it hasn't been done well, so I'd have to make a pitch for myself. <laughs> That's totally fair. I would like to see it done because it is a great battle and it does. It is very worthy of having a faithful adaptation made. So I'm going to hope that someone will pick it up and do something amazing with it then. So kind of uh, there's like three questions I kind of usually ask to end the interview portion of the podcast. And the first is when you were a student, and this could be either in undergrad or grad school, did you attend office hours? I did. Yes. Both undergraduate and graduate. Great. And from these experiences, do you have a favorite memory or conversation or any experience from one of these times? That's a really good question. I, 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 you know, I fondly remember sitting in Professor Kagan's office in graduate school, um, and he had this wonderful poster on the wall of a charioteer at Delphi, um, and he had a window into a courtyard, and a light would come in, as I remember and imagine it, uh, and then he would be there speaking. He was so informal and so relaxed and so magisterial in a kind of... Um, informal again to use that word informal friendly kind of way those were great conversations i remember them very very fondly oh that's great to hear and so from the other side now as an educator yourself if you had to give students like an elevator pitch for why office hours are important to go to what would you say uh that is a great question as well my elevator pitch would be Never underestimate the importance of personal contact. I mean, this would be my lesson for uh, your generation in in general. I think that people who grew up in the digital world tend to think, ah, you don't really have to do personal contact. You can do it by email or by Zoom or by text or whatever the latest and greatest thing is. Long, long, nothing is more important than personal contact. And, you know, um, Let's get real. You want that person who's going to put a great, give you a grade to know who you are and to have uh, um, pleasant thoughts about you. And so office hours are that. And maybe to be a little bit less cynical, um, you can get faculty members to say things and tell you things and reveal things in office hours that they're not going to do in a more formal setting because we're all human beings. So there's that as well. You might learn something. Yeah. Well, I, I couldn't have said it better because I... Definitely would never leave my professor's office hours. They probably won't. I sometimes I joke that they lovingly couldn't wait to kick me out of their office because they wanted to go home. So, um, and so finally, at the end of each podcast, I ask if every guest will read Percy Shelley's beautiful poem, Ozymandias. And, af- and after you've read it, um, if you could just give us your thoughts on like 
you know, do you like this poem? If it, you know, if it seems like it's a really powerful poem, um, you know, what is it that stands out about it to you? I will do that. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. That was Amandius. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, Half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculpture well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Dozamandius, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. You know, I do, but also, no, it was truly amazing because I do love it when it's read by like a very epic sounding deep voice. So it sounds, you know, appropriate. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, you. You must say that to all your guests, but thank you. You know, having read this poem, though, like, what what do you think about it? Like, uh, do, you know, does it speak to you? <laughs> oh, certainly. This poem is always, uh, always has, has, has spoken to me. Um, you know, the, the the romance of ruins and the vanity of uh, the vanity of human civilization, you know, nothing lasts. And uh, the power of kings and tyrants is the most vain thing uh, of all. I mean, uh, what's most important from antiquity is its its literature, um, its art, its architecture, um, not the um, the claims to power that individual rulers had. And and Shelley captures it so so beautifully. It's also it's just a beautiful poem. And that's the thing about the Romantic poets. It was just this wonderful moment in civilization where um, um, it's just the right combination of classical and emotional passionate uh, another of my favorite poems is um oh uh, on, first, on first reading chapman's homer on first reading chapman's homer silent upon a peak in darien the way that ends it just gives me the chills the way the way that poem ends uh, and this one uh as well a traveler from an antique land i think there's a very good book by amitav ghosh called a traveler from an antique land or maybe just from an antique land these poems are just I just got such wonderful 
language uh, to them. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's my favorite poem ever for for basically those same reasons. But I mean, I take it one step further and definitely I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a brilliantly crafted 14-line political treatise and memento mori all crammed in those 14 lines by Shelley. Beautifully said, yes, yes. I mean, it's fantastic. And and it it also gave me the avenue to be able to figure out new ways of considering what Shelley meant when he was writing. And so one of the, the questions I love asking guests on my show is if we think about our contemporary society right now, like do we have a modern day Ozymandias, like something that we think is so great and amazing and powerful, but like realistically, are future humans going to look back and say, oh, yeah, totally, it's monumental, it's here? Or will we look back and say, like, this is the stupidest thing we've ever thought of? <laughs> I'm going to say social media. <laughs> look on my work, be mighty in despair. <laughs> I really think you're right about that one, especially since, honestly, people these days don't have uh, the attention span to get through more than a than a one-minute TikTok, right? <laughs> You got it. That's for sure. <laughs> Which is a bit funny, considering I will sit down and read like a, a tome on ancient Greece. And yet I don't even have the patience to sit through a one minute TikTok. Someone will send me one and I'll be like, oh, I couldn't be bothered. It's too hard. It's too long. Well, bra bravissima, Lexi. That's all I can say if, if that's what you do. But all of our uh, we need we need to work on those, those, those patience muscles for each of us. <laughs> You know, read 19th century novels and things. So it gets back where we need to go. Yeah, because people don't read anymore. They just scroll on their Instagram reels. And I'm like, no, but books. Students don't read. Let me tell you, they don't read. <laughs> exactly. Or, you know, we're big babies and we like people to read to us because I will admit that I do enjoy audiobooks because it's like someone reads to me and I don't have to actually sit down with the book but that's just if i'm busy doing something and then i'm lazy and then i'll be like okay i'll pop in an audiobook and so the last question i really want to ask you is where can people find you and your like your books and um you know if they just want to you know see more of your work people can find me at my website barrystrauss.com nothing could be easier b-a-r-r-y-s-t-r-a-u-s-s Dot com and there you can find all my books you can buy them to your heart's content uh but and you can find latest updates on me when this vid when this um uh, podcast is ready i will put it on uh on on my website uh but also i've got my own podcast antiquitas leaders and legends of the ancient world and that's one of the places you can access it as as well i've also got a blog that i update every two weeks and uh, you can subscribe, you can sign up and get email uh, blasts every time a new blog is out. It's going to be tomorrow, as, as a matter of fact, the day, given the day that we're speaking. Um, but yeah, barrystress.com is where I live. Oh, amazing. Great. Well, I will link all of the wonderful things for people to find in the show notes. And thank you so much again for joining me. I was so excited to have this conversation and uh, hopefully we can have you on in the future. Sure. Thanks for asking such great questions. Um, 
And uh, please let me know when when this is posted. Um, not everybody does, but I'd love that if you do, so that I can I, I can put it on my uh, sites as well. For sure, for sure. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is present ponderings.